0: All right, that's the word of God, amen? Amen. Amen. Our Bibles title the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles. But in all actuality, it should probably be titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit of God through the early church. The Acts of the Holy Spirit. This morning's passage puts me and you on a front row, really, maybe we should say front seat of a roller coaster, really. Front row seat to a center stage performance of God's Spirit. From our passage today, we will seek to answer the question the Holy Spirit, who is He? Who is He? But let's think about that question as an intro here this morning. Notice we said, who is He? Not, you know, we need to ask, is the right word who? We're not asking, you know, what is He? When or where or why or how? We could ask those things about the Holy Spirit, but are, are they good? And the answer is no. The better question is who? You see, there is so much confusion in our modern day, the era of the church awaiting Christ's return. There's a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit. And often it is our failure to understand the who of who is the Holy Spirit that gives way to error and oftentimes obsession even over the what about the Holy Spirit or the when or the where or the why about the Holy Spirit. Let me just consider, let's just consider two common errors this morning uh, that happened as an introduction here. The, the what misconception. You know, some people think the Holy Spirit is a force or a presence. Maybe the Holy Spirit is just a feeling we get. I think this is the misconception of only thinking about this God's Spirit in terms of what? Let me give you some examples. In its worst form, cults, and specifically the Jehovah's Witness. They say the Spirit is a force. Some Christian circles, though, even elevate the Holy Spirit as a power to be accessed, isolating the feeling of the Spirit in a subjective way that says a lot more about themselves than who the Holy Spirit is. This is problematic but let's be honest. How many of us, if we're honest, can come to places in our lives where we say things or we think things like, I need to rely more on the Spirit. I need the power of the Spirit. We talk about it in the form of what, as if it's something, you know, a what that is out there floating around instead of a who, a person. That's the what misconception. Let's just take one more. What about this whole the how misconception? It's real popular, and especially in a text like this, the Holy Spirit, you know, if you only interact with... Holy Spirit on a how level, you'll say things like, the Holy Spirit is amazing and over the top. And if not, then it's not the Spirit. I'll give you an example. Today's text could be treated as normative. Miracles treated as normative. Powerful signs must appear in my life or others' lives for me to term it the Holy Spirit. This is problematic, right? Right? There has been absolutely no normal pattern of God working the type of miracles with the frequency we see through the amount of people we see him doing them as he did in the time of Jesus and the apostles. So anywhere on the earth since then, we have not seen the frequency, the normal pattern or the type of man's whole hand fully regenerating into grabbing and touching the uh, withered feet fully. We just haven't seen and yet, some people think that is, that is how we must interact with the Holy Spirit. We have to see these things. If it's amazing and it's over the top, if it's the, it's the Holy Spirit, if it's not, then, you know, we don't know. Packer, Jab Packer says, witnessing to Jesus. Like telling people about Jesus. Glorifying him by God by showing his disciples who he is. Making people aware of who they are and what they are in or out of him, out of God, is at the core of the Spirit's ministry. That's the core. You know, God, the Spirit, makes, uh, he makes sin repulsive and Christ adorable in the eyes of people who previously loved sin and cared nothing for a divine Savior. God implants desires that were not there before. That's the work of the Spirit, and it's normal, right? And it's not as flashy, I think Packer's right in the misconception that we face when we start to interact with the Holy Spirit wrongly is we at times can obsess over manifestations that we deem as powerful and ignore the normal operation of the Spirit. The Spirit is not a what? The Spirit is not a force or a feeling or a presence, The Spirit is not a howl, that is, the the power or a sign we see or some manifestation. The truth of Christian theology is that the Holy Spirit is a person, not human person like you think about being a, a people, but God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one of those distinct persons in the Godhead. He's a person. The Spirit is a person. Does he indwell believers Yes. If you are in Christ and you're a believer in Christ today, He indwells you. He's in this room then. He's a person. Implications of this are seen in our passage. The, the principles of a right doctrine of the Holy Spirit are seen very clearly in the Holy Spirit's activity here in our text. In our text today, we're going to see the Spirit is a guide, an interpreter, and sovereign. That's our three points this morning. He's a guide. He's an interpreter. The Spirit is sovereign. Let's see, the Spirit is a guide. Okay, so for some reason, growing up in Southern uh, church culture, I picked up on the favorite prayer I always heard from a Baptist, from Baptist deacons, you know, at the end of a Sunday night service in Baptist churches, often you'll have a randomly, you know, the preacher will randomly call on on one of the deacons to pray a prayer, and almost always I would hear something along the lines of, Father, lead, guide, and direct us. You ever heard that? It it, it exists, and I always laughed. Um, Lead, guide, and direct us. Lead, lead, lead. I mean, all those things mean lead, right? Lead, lead, lead us, essentially. Um, But I remember that being offered sometimes so casually with almost little to zero faith behind it. I bring that up because we wrongly assume that just because we believe something The Spirit must be leading and guiding and directing our steps, you know. I mean, the prayer would also be, you know, Lord, keep us safe, right? Keep us safe, God. Keep us safe. Maybe the most dangerous idea in cultural Christian circles is the false notion that the slightest tug of religious sentiment in my heart must be God's Spirit leading me. That's a dangerous way to think. It's a dangerous sentiment. If we don't understand how the Spirit of God leads us, then we will begin to credit every religious sentiment, every affection that we feel or don't feel as being God's spirit. We need grounded leadership. The spirit, if he's a guide, has to do it like thoroughly. Well, one, one way to be led by the Holy Spirit as a guide to our lives is to look at the example of scripture where men were led by the spirit. And that's what you just heard read to you. Today, that man for us is Philip. Philip in the passage. OK, the spirit was his guide in two ways. It was, he, he, he was guided through difficulty and to diligence. The Spirit guided him through difficulty. Let's look at the text. Look at 26 and 27. Again, notice it's an angel of the Lord that says to Philip, Hey, rise, go to the south of the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. Now, you may see this and think, What's difficult about that? Right? God is making it really clear, like the Spirit's guiding him. Yes, where where the Spirit is guiding Philip is very clear. I mean, it's so clear an angel or some understanding of a messenger of God has literally showed up and is speaking to him directly with a map. (laughs) Like, awesome, right? Like, actual proper nouns and cities are being used. Like, a map is given. Nothing difficult about that. Ah, but listen, the difficulty is actually... To understand the word now in verse 26. Do you see the word now? Now implies something new. Therefore, to leave what he was doing. Back up to verse 8. Verse 8 in this chapter says that there was much joy in the city. Philip has been laboring to preach the gospel, and there's joy. In other words, it's good. If you, if you go on uh, to chapter 9, if you flip over a page, look at verse 31 of chapter 9. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, that's where Philip's been, what does it have? It had peace and was being built up. It was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. It multiplied. Look beloved the, the the spirit is guiding Philip, awesome, and it's very clear, but what's difficult about this? Notice what the spirit said. Go to a desert road and desert place look folks that's that's one s, not two. you notice that It's not desert, right It's going to a deserted place, not desert. There isn't an ice cream shop, a gospel presentation waiting on the abandoned road at least at least as. As Philip is understanding it right now, so let me let me explain. Scholars and archaeologists know that at this time Gaza, where, where God says, "Right, go get up, go south to Gaza." Um, th- this is a desert place. We know that that city was a great city of the Philistines, but in 97 BC, so this is like possibly around 40 50s AD. So we're talking over 100 years ago. It was destroyed, and the city was not rebuilt in the time of Philip. It was destroyed. And the road that went from Jerusalem to it, it wasn't used anymore. And we also know that in 57 BC, a new Gaza, a new city was built closer to the coast that actually had a newer road. So I mean, literally the spirit of God is leading Philip to the middle of nowhere. Hey, Philip, look at this joy in the city, all this awesome things going on, a lot of work to be done. And now the word difficult makes sense, doesn't it? The Spirit, in his guidance, leads Philip through difficulty. God, why would you send me there? (laughs) Look at all the work I have to do here. There's so much going on. Why there? There's so much here. You want me on that road heading there to nowhere? I mean, I'm supposed to leave this full, flourishing ministry where peace and these things happen, and I'm supposed to walk on an, an abandoned road to an abandoned city? That's your plan, God? But you know, I'm I'm saying all that, right? I mean, these would seem like normal questions. But let me say something. Normal is often disobedience if we're not careful, okay? Normal is often disobedience if we're not careful. It's real easy to get caught up in the normal understandings of what God's spirit is doing and its leadership and its purpose. What we deem normal oftentimes can become disobedient Philip is an example to us of fully trusting the Spirit of God to be his guide, okay? Even through a difficult transition that he may only understand to be right because God said it. I mean, do you realize that? All Philip has to go on is God has said it, and that's enough for him, and he goes. We should underline that. We should think about that. I mean, immediately, right? Angel says, go. What does he do? He goes. I mean, it's, it's as simple as... The Spirit guides him through a difficulty, but look, secondly, the Spirit was his guide to diligence as well. Now look, you heard the story, so I won't read it to you, but let me give you some historical context to help you see the actions of the Spirit and Philip leading uh, to this faithfulness, okay, this diligence in him. So first, note the geography that's at play in this passage. There's a lot of it. It's actually pretty simple, okay? Think about it like this. Jerusalem's on a hill, so anytime you leave Jerusalem, you're always going down. Okay, that's why it always says he went down. He went down. So just, just you know, not to confuse you. Well, Philip so far has gone down, and it's north really to Samaria at the beginning of chapter eight. All right, now he's going down. Now he's actually going south in our text uh, of Jerusalem on a road leading to old Gaza this this abandoned area which is which is really southwest it's near the shore of the Mediterranean Sea okay and then when he is picked up by the spirit and he's put in Azotus that is almost directly west so like if you're on looking at a map now we're left and a little south of Jerusalem near the coast and then he goes on his own to Caesarea that's north now back up preaching the gospel Philip's itinerary looks a lot like like a Methodist circuit preacher in early America, if you know about that, doesn't it? I mean, it, he, needs, he needs the work of the Spirit to help him stay diligent. There's all these stopovers. He's preaching at all these places, and Spirit's moving him. He's like on this circuit of evangelism. By the way, cool side note, we will see in the future. Uh, chapter 21 for us, 20 years later in the book of Acts, Philip is still an itinerant evangelist in chapter 21 of Acts He has four daughters who all prophesy. This dude never stopped what we're talking about this morning, which is so encouraging. Uh, Anyway, but finally, geographically, we need to get our mind around Ethiopia. Um, Egypt is in North Africa. So the furthest he goes to meet this Ethiopian is on that southern road on the way to old Gaza. It's over here near Jerusalem. Ethiopia, or excuse me, Egypt is North Africa. Below that is Ethiopia, Egypt, prominent in the scriptures. What we call Sudan today is where Nubian dynasties were, and that is where this eunuch in our story is from. Now, listen, okay, you're asking, why this geography? Well, first of all, you need to know it, okay? Um, you really do. It keeps, it keeps the Bible grounded, pun intended right there, okay? It keeps it grounded in the sense of like, it's not a made-up fairy tale, people actually walk these roads. This is not your favorite like, novel series or binge-worthy show that takes you to another world. You can get on a plane today, go to old Gaza, see the ruins, walk the path, know, oh, maybe the Ethiopian unit got baptized in that little like, oasis in the midst of this desert. You can go there. So I want to tell you, first of all, I'm not, we're not wasting breath in that sense. But second, it's for our point to show you um, how the Spirit worked in Philip's life. Nothing about this text gives me or you the right to demand that preachers, evangelists, you know, et cetera, must be moving around all the time. And if you think that, you've missed it. However, the activity of the Spirit saying, go south, and then and then go speak to this man, and then pick him up and carry him to another location, does make us stop and consider something amazing about the Spirit's work. Let me show you why. The Spirit was filling Philip, in all these places, what was he doing? Look at verse 5 of chapter 8. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. What did he do? Proclaimed to them the Christ. Verse 35 in our text, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told the Ethiopian eunuch the good news about Jesus. What's Philip doing over in Azotus? Verse 40, Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through... What did he do? He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Diligence in being guided by the Spirit, whether in one spot or six, it means preaching the gospel. If you're moving around all the time geographically, or look, let me make it more realistic in how you move about your daily life. And you are not preaching the gospel, thinking about the gospel to yourself, to others. You're not likely being guided by the Spirit. You may be being guided by something else. You want the Spirit's guidance in your life? Look to the example of Philip. He was able to hear God say, I'm taking you to a difficult place, and he knew God was with him. He was able to be diligent in that place because he was committed to what? The gospel. And what is the gospel? What is the gospel but a merciful moderation of God's goodness to you? The gospel is this simple, beautiful reality that God in his infinite power and justice and amazing wisdom is holy and set apart for me and you. And he wounded the sacred head of his own son on your behalf if you would just look to Jesus by faith. God was crushed and killed on the cross for you in your place. He dies, he rises, he says, I'm Lord of all. He ascends into heaven. Those who look to him by faith will have what? Eternal life. The gospel is what sustains sustains Philip. If he, wants, if he wants guidance by the spirit, even on this level, which is a serious level. I mean, the Holy Spirit is doing some crazy stuff in this. It's one thing to be guided to know I need to go preach over there. It's another thing to be preaching there and the spirit literally teleport you. Somehow you wake up and you realize I'm 20 miles from where I was. That's miraculous, yes. But you know what sustains a man through such volatile kind of change, he preached the gospel. Don't overlook that. The Spirit is a guide. We submit ourselves to him. You know what else our text shows about the Spirit? This person, he's an interpreter. He's an interpreter. Maybe most importantly for this text, God the Holy Spirit is an interpreter. So to see that, we need to quickly context this unique encounter with this eunuch, okay, for anyone who doesn't know. A man like this, a eunuch like in this story, was common leadership for queens in the ancient East. So often these officials, these eunuchs, were in charge of the king's harem of women. So you see the usefulness of being a eunuch. Uh, Candace, when it says the the queen of Ethiopia, Candace, is actually a title here, not her name. Ethiopian kings, they were pretty inactive. They were considered gods uh, themselves. They wanted their people to believe that, so they really didn't do much. And they let the queens do much of the ruling. And so queens of Ethiopia, historically, even before this this one in history, took on the title Candace. Now, I tell you that to say, I say that to show this man, this eunuch, is a powerful person all right? He's a powerful individual. He's wealthy, we know that. He's able to travel very far, days of journeying, for him to come to Jerusalem and to go back. And then while he's there to buy and purchase a scroll, okay, of Isaiah. Guys, they couldn't go into, you know, Lifeway store back when they used to have that or whatever, right? Like, you couldn't go into like the Good Book or whatever store and just be like, yeah, I want this version of the Bible. Um, there were versions for purchase, but you're talking about men, scribes, Pharisees, copying over onto a large scroll length, sometimes 35 feet by the time you unrolled it. And it could unroll in a certain way to where it was manageable in your own hand. That's how you can read it on the road. But the point being, it would have been very expensive. Most never did. That's why oratory teaching was used by the Jews, that it would show up to the place where the scroll was and one would read it. But rarely did they have it on their own. But the eunuchs, he's got it. And um, he's wealthy. Finally, he's someone in his day that the Jews would have called a God-fearer. He couldn't be circumcised. He couldn't partake in the activities of the Jews in worship of Yahweh um, in the same way that a Jew could. He, He could enter what's called the court of the Gentiles, but he would be separated from the court that the Jews themselves would go into and certainly further away from the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. So that's his profile. So on to our point about the Spirit being an interpreter. I think this is very important and helps correct any wrong notion we have about the Spirit's involvement when preaching the gospel. Look at 29 through 31 again. Notice, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless... Someone guides me. And so the eunuch did what? He invited Philip in uh, to come up and sit with him. So the spirit, all right, remember, the spirit has brought Philip out of the fruitful land into this barren desert to meet this one truth-seeking eunuch. Right? Yes, that's right. I mean, the chariot is moving, (laughs) is the idea here. Philip just runs it down. I mean, I think it's amazing and funny to note that he ran to it. But also notice in what we just read. (sighs) Excuse me. This Ethiopian was already uh, reading the scriptures which Paul says can make someone wise unto salvation uh, to believe. So Philip then obeys the Lord by simply asking the man about what is he reading and he's welcomed into the chariot for this Bible study. Now I want you to think because your Bible records in 32 and 33 what he was how he answers that. But do you realize that You know, what passage are they in and how do you get there? Well, the quote here is actually from Isaiah chapter 53. So over here in the Bible, in your Old Testament, you've got 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. This portion that he's reading is in the 53rd chapter. The eunuch has already read 52 chapters before this. We need to think about this. If the Holy Spirit is an interpreter, I want you to see some things. The eunuch before this has beheld the glory of God, whose train fills the temple as angels sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty in Isaiah chapter 6. In this chariot, he has read that a son of importance is to be born to the earth in Isaiah 9, one on whom the government's shoulders will lean, will lean to, they will, they will be supported in. This man has read that a cornerstone of God will be rejected by some, and yet God will build on it anyway. In chapter 28 of Isaiah, he has read that the blind will see, the lame will walk, that preaching in the wilderness will happen, that God's spirit will be upon his Messiah, that he will be mistreated as the Messiah. All of this he has read, having just left Jerusalem, which you know must still be abuzz with the news about Jesus and these Christian groups that he must have seen. Consider this. He has just read these words prior to the interruption of Philip. Listen to this. He has just read before verses that are in your Bible, these verses in Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Likely a burning in his bones as he is jostled in this chariot, as he thinks. And then what does he hear? Hey, stop the cart! What are you reading? oh, um, oh, I just got to this portion here, uh, like a sheep, and then he reads. thirty. Look at, your, look at your Bible there, 32 and 33. He probably reads it out loud. He's probably reading out loud. They read out loud to you know, help themselves because they weren't strong readers uh, kind of across the, the place. Uh, but here's the point. It, a simple question from the eunuch in verse 34 stands out to us now. The eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, Does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Verse 35, look at it again now. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him what? The good news about Jesus. Here's the key the Spirit is interpreting, and then Philip shows up with the final key, right? Insert Jesus. What happens? Salvation. Oh, how sweet and easy it is to see how the Spirit loves to interpret. The Spirit is an interpreter. They all, right? I mean, I love how it says starting from this scripture, as if like every scripture you start from can eventually get you to Jesus. It's true. And here God has shown that to Philip. One of the most silly accusations that I think people make against. This idea of God's spirit being the one that does a work in people. And, you know, people make an argument against Reformed theology. They say things like this. They say, whoever could believe in predestination that God knows and therefore God's spirit is the ultimate interpreter, the one who gives life. They're hyper-Calvinists, you know. The worst thing that people accuse us of is, is that, you know, they're just, they believe the spirit will do it and so we don't have to do anything. Listen to me, that is so wrong. We don't believe that, right? It's a heresy. Let me tell you a story of a brother of ours in the faith um, years, years ago in the 16th, 17th, or 17th, 18th century. His name is William Carey. We call him the father of the modern Day missions movement. He was a particular Baptist. That means he was a, a happy Calvinist. And, and among he was among other particular Baptists. And they were heretical. And uh, William Carey was realizing, much like this Ethiopian eunuch, God was clearly at work in his life, right? The Spirit was bearing witness to him. And yet God wanted to use a means of salvation to bring this eunuch to full faith in Christ, aka Philip and his obedience. And so, Rightly so, William Carey was raising the question to some older men. William Carey was a young man at the time wanting to go on mission uh, to to places like India. And, And he raised the question, he said, we must be involved in the process of God saving someone. And famously, one of those leaders rebuked William Carey. He said this, he said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Thankfully, William Carey disagreed with that. And he stood for the truth that we see in this passage and all over scripture. Listen to me, beloved. Although it is true that God alone gives a new heart in conversion, it is also true... That the only time in scripture we see anyone, Old or New Testament, believe by faith, it is always accompanied by the proclamation of, the discussion of, or the preaching of the truth of God's word. If that's God speaking himself in the Old Testament, or if that's God speaking through his prophet, if that's God speaking through somebody who came to Nineveh to tell them, even if it's a pitiful gospel message, God preaches, and that is the means he wants to use by which what? He does his work of interpretation. The Spirit is an interpreter. But if we were to trend toward the error of inactivity in this truth, we would be in gross misunderstanding of what the Spirit is all about. We cannot sit on our hands idly believing that God will save who he will save. That's antithetical to the way God has revealed how he'll save them. How he will save them, the means, Phillips, obedience, right? The means in God's economy in the scripture are as as necessary as an ingredient to the regeneration he alone can do. They're the same, they're one and the same over and over again. To dissect them apart is to make too much. Too much is to leave the spirit alone in regeneration. As if Ethiopians can just all of a sudden regenerate their, uh, you know, have their hearts regenerated by the Spirit apart from the preaching of the gospel. It's bogus, and God upsets the, the the future peace and unity going on in what He's doing in Samaria. God intentionally upsets that through difficulty. Leads His servant by the power of His Spirit to this place on this road to show means matter. That's huge. People that would wrongly take beautiful doctrine like God regenerates by the power of his spirit, which we believe, and to say that that then allows us to be idle, they don't believe that doctrine. They don't believe the doctrine because the good doctrine that God alone can save your lost friends, lost coworkers, lost family, people who are on the wide path to destruction leading to hell, God alone can save them. That good truth that God is the one that has to do it and you can't do it for them and they can't do it for themselves, that good truth will always manifest itself. You know what it'll do? It'll be, the only way you can understand that about the wide road is if you yourself on the narrow road are absolutely on the edge of that wide road, beckoning people to come on, come on, come on, believe, trust the gospel. You got to be there preaching the gospel. Don't, don't take a right of, of theology to say God will save them and let that lead you to inactivity. Because if it does, you don't believe God will save them. Why? Because God in his sovereignty has chosen to limit his activity at times to the prayers and the actions of his people. God will put Philip there on purpose. Yes, God is the interpreter. Yes, this Ethiopian eunuch has thought about God for a long time before this. I mean, he's willing to use like pagan resources of his as he's wealthy and rich in Ethiopia to travel to to get an ear, to get a little bit closer to this God of the Jews. That's true. God did that. God let him read all those verses prior. But do you see the sovereign work of God? The Spirit is a guide who guided Philip there. The Spirit is also an interpreter that led Philip to share God's truth so that God alone could convert this man, give him a new heart. And that's huge for us in missions. It's huge. Here's another thing that's huge in closing. Not only is the Spirit... You know, the one who is, who is doing uh, this, this guiding and interpreting, he's also sovereign. He is just sovereign. I want you to see, I cannot read this, I cannot read this story and not get a little nervous uh, for all the crazy things that are happening in it that I cannot fully explain. You know, the spirit in this time of the apostolic period is, I mean, in this text alone, he's bringing angelic instruction to Philip. He's speaking out loud to Philip. He's using Philip to both save and baptize this man spontaneously on the road. And then after that, if that weren't enough, he's essentially teleporting Philip. Or at least, as, I mean, I, I read so many commentaries and, and internet sites on this. No one will just outright say that God just straight up picked him up and moved him. The Greek is a bit confusing, but it implies in the same way that the Septuagint talks about like men like Elijah being swooped up into flame and carried into heaven it's using that type, that type of language to say that dude was one place and then all of a sudden he was a different place. So whether he's in a trance and God's walking him or he's actually materializing, you know, beam me up, Scotty. I don't know. I just know that everybody who's I trust as a commentator says this is pretty crazy. And so the phenomenal in this text kind of is nerve wracking for me as a preacher, if I'm honest. Here's why. Today, many preachers, whole denominations, or various individual Christians, they view the Spirit's work as being like this for them directly. They teach it that way. It's not just among the charismatic movement. It's in a lot of movements. Many people take an isolationist view in their approach to the Spirit and passages like this one. Fundamentalism, at its worst, will also do this. Not taking into account all the Bible, but isolating a passage. I mean, let me, some preachers and teachers today will say that if you don't have this type of ministry or you don't have this type of experience in your life, et cetera, et cetera, well, you should doubt whether or not the Spirit is really working in your life. They'll say that unhelpfully. They would say you need to seek God more to have such faith or such, such experiences, I hate that, and it couldn't be further from the truth. It ignores something profound that the sovereign, about the sovereign work of God's spirit throughout all of time as it has been revealed to us. Consider with me, in closing, the sovereignty of the spirit as God has chosen to reveal it around this passage. It'll help you, I think, to soften the blows that this passage may deal to you. If you think, yeah, I'll be a witness for Christ like Philip, but man, that stuff's not happening in my life, so I'm a poor witness. Look, That's a lie. Let, let, let what I've already said, look how the Spirit guided, look how the Spirit interpreted, right? And yes, you play a part, but if that's not enough, man, I think the sovereign display of God's goodness in the whole Bible about who is this person, the Holy Spirit, and how does he assist, it can bring us into a great conclusion this morning. Do you know that in Genesis 1, before the fall, it was the Spirit, and the Hebrew word is ruach. And it's the Spirit of God, and it hovered over the entire creation of God. After the fall into sin, you know, we really don't see the Spirit interact with a person. There's teaching on it, but we don't see it interact with a person until this kid named Joseph has these dreams. He's one of 12 of the sons of Jacob, you'll remember, and he has these dreams, and it says the Spirit gives him the ability to do what? What? Interpret the dreams. Already the Spirit's an interpreter, right? And it's not even until years later that the Spirit again begins to empower some individuals. We see the creative, artistic abilities of a couple of men as they help build and decorate uh, decorate God's tabernacle. God gives His Spirit a special portion of it to help them do that. The Spirit then, from that point on, really just empowers leadership. So the rest of the whole Old Testament, the judges of Israel randomly get filled with the Spirit. Guys like Joshua or Samson, right? Donkey jawbone, filled with the Spirit, slaughtering Philistines, or Gideon. Finally, those who experience this, the Spirit, um, they are prophets, the prophets have a long-standing tradition for thousands of years where what is, what is happening? The Spirit is leading them to stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord, and they're preaching. But listen, that's it. That's really it. And it's not as often and it's not as profound as you might expect to see in the Old Testament. Until Jesus. Right? When it comes to the scriptures, until Jesus. When Jesus shows up, he is baptized, and the Spirit physically descends from heaven as, as, as seen as a dove almost and rests upon him. The spirit actively working miracles through him in profound ways. The spirit of God confronting evil, unseen spirits. Paul says we do not battle flesh and blood. We battle what? Principalities and darkness. That's something me and you understand now, but we don't understand it like, hey, look at that demon right there. And yet Jesus shows up and the Holy Spirit, who's he, who he, he is in perfect communion with, right, for he's the Godhead, is doing what? There's a demon, there's a demon, there's a demon, there's a demon, casting them out, having conversations with them. It's crazy. The, the number of it. The miracles that show up accompanied by the Spirit, Jesus in the Spirit doing these miracles. The Spirit leading him to things like supernatural fasting for 40 days to be tempted by Satan himself. The Spirit empowered Jesus' preaching and his teaching with an authority like no one had ever seen. Do you realize that same Spirit had, at times in the Old Testament, given prophets the word of God, right? That's why the red-letter Bibles are trash, because it's all God's word. But it's still important, though, to say, hey, look, the Spirit empowered Jesus in a way that nobody had heard before. This guy has an authority we are not familiar with. You know, the Spirit of God bore witness to him in his death. The Spirit of God is what resurrected him from the dead. The Spirit of God, he breathes on his disciples. The Spirit falls on the disciples in Acts 2. We've seen the Spirit work through their shadows. We've seen the Spirit work through their words, through their actions. The Spirit has killed people in the church. Right here in this little bit of time where Jesus has showed up, Jesus and those directly connected to him bring out this accompaniment of amazing signs and wonders. That's beautiful, right? Now, keep going, though. Okay, keep going in the fact of like, we're looking to this as an example. I want to be led like Philip's led. I want, I want to be discerning like he is. I want, to, I want to see God interpret like his truth when I share it with people. I want to believe in the power and the person of the Holy Spirit But then I get discouraged because I don't see this explosion of fruit. Listen, don't stop with the apostolic age. Because what ended up happening? The Spirit kind of returned back to the normal function he was doing in the Old Testament, right? Feeling a witness to stand up and to share the truth. Now we say God spoke to you in ways of this, this, and this in the old days, but now he speaks to you through Jesus Christ. God has miraculously, with his spirit this morning, raised up a 100,000 preachers all over the earth on the Lord's day to to do a miracle of what I'm doing right now, of saying, yet not I, but Christ in me, look to Jesus. What was he doing in the Old Testament? He was using his spirit to preach to the prophets. And as that happened, more and more prophets rose, and more like the priests pointing to the great high priest, as they rose, what happened? The signs and wonders fell off. Yeah, there's creative minds like before, but there's just a few of them. Just like Aholiab and these other guys who had a little bit of the Spirit in the Old Testament to create it, to be creative, to, to let what God has said is His law be understood in a beautiful way. Don't we still have artists and things now on this side of it that the Spirit is empowering and working through? Yes, but it's not this ecstatic, demon outcasting, wild ride of Philip getting transported, right? Don't misconstrue it. You can keep going. The spirit is hovering right now over his new creation, the church. I said to you in the beginning of this sermon, he's in here. He's not a force, he's a person. I think if we say that enough to ourselves in faith with Christ in the right eyes, that begins to shake us to our core. It shakes me. The same spirit you're telling me that hovered over the waters of creation as nothingness became you know, something and God's providence and power, that spirit hovers over his new creation, his church, his people, creating between them and heaven as an embassy, a safe and understanding place where the truth can be exalted. Yeah, yeah, I am saying that. It is phenomenal. It's miraculous. It's way better than any sign we would chase down, right? The spirit... There's this, there's this symmetry of the Bible. And directly in the center of it is this great activity of spiritual things linked to Jesus. Okay? And, and Jesus is actually there, and so it's actually happening more. And then when Jesus is not so much physically there in the beginnings and the ends, but he's promised, what's happening? The same thing that's happening while he's there, you just now you, you strip away all that stuff, and what do you see? God's word starts and brings and ends by faith. God's word starts and ends and brings by faith. God's word starts and ends and brings by faith. It's God's word. It's all pointing to one thing. For us to isolate and take out explosions of excitement in our work, that's not healthy. That's not healthy at all. It's not. Until that day, we learn from men like Philip that the Spirit's work is the best work that he is a person, he's not a force. He can be our guide, our true interpreter, and he is sovereign. That's what I'm trying to say. One day you and I will see perfectly, not dimly now, perfectly the Spirit's fellowship with the Son and the Father, and we'll be included in that forever. We'll be seeing that one day. Until then, we must recover what? We must recover a faithful example in Philip here. We have to be ready and, and, and to, to go and to knock on the door of the eunuch, right? We have to be ready. We have to do that. But we should not get discouraged when we don't see bells, whistles, and fireworks. Here's something we can do prescriptively in closing. Look at verse 40. The smoke clears. <laughs> Philip finds himself at Azotus. And as he preached, or as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let me just be as clear as I can. Here's what me and you should do with this text. We have found ourselves at Nacogdoches. And as we pass through, we can preach the gospel to all the peoples we come in contact with until we come to our eternal home. We can be prescriptive about that, so please do. Please do be prescriptive about that. Preach the gospel of our Lord. And in that, be confident that you're being led by the Spirit. That's what, that's what, that's what permeates the book of Acts, this man died. He rose again. I was dead. Now I'm not, though. Preach Jesus. It's literally the whole book. Are there explosions of excitement and cool things happening on the way? Yeah, I hope to see a lot of that. But at the end of the day, you know what's awesome about Philip? <laughs> he's, a, he's, gui- he's, he's able to be guided. He understands the Holy Spirit as the main interpreter. And he trusts in the sovereignty of God and keeps preaching. This is what you and I get to do. Let me pray for us in closing. We'll sing and then we'll pray together again. God, thank you for the hope we have of a great example in Philip. God, um, he is a flawed and sinful man just like I am, just like any of us are, Lord. But God, I believe in prayer with these people, Lord, this morning that though we really would love to try to believe that some force or feeling or presence of your spirit is all that we would need, God, it's just not true. What we have in you As the gospel has been preached to us and as we've believed it, and as we stay, Lord, kept in your providence, as we go and we preach that gospel to others, Lord, it's all we need. Your word is enough. It's sufficient. And so, God, I pray you will help us to be led, help us to be uh, able to be guided, even if it's to continue in something difficult or to leave something good, to go to something difficult. God, help us to believe that if you're leading us, we'll have what we need. Lord, help us to be people who not only in our being guided by you, but that as we go, we believe that you are an interpreter. You, Spirit, give give clear understanding to those who don't know or don't believe, us included. So God, grant us belief. And may we see that sovereignly you've worked through all time. As you are there and the, the face of the water is covering it, as you will be with the light of heaven yourself. And we see God's face. God, held together in that is that It's not us, it's you, and it's Christ. So as we sing about Jesus, help us to believe it today. And as we pray, and we pray with fervor, we ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.